in-depth journalism is more important than ever in a complicated, chaotic time. That's why we listen to NPR's Throughline. This is a podcast that appeals to us on so many levels. As history buffs, we love their historical contextualization of important ongoing issues. As storytellers, we love the engaging way they approach and often humanize complicated tales. As news consumers who want to stay informed, we love the way they give the story behind the big stories of the day. We try to take a similar approach on the murder sheet, and we feel confident that our listeners would enjoy giving NPR's Throughline a try. We've been going through their entire backlog recently, listening to them as we drive to source meetings. One favorite of mine was their episode about Andrew Johnson's impeachment. Throughline's coverage didn't disappoint, delving in depth into one of history's worst U.S. presidents. They also did an episode which is rather pertinent to our work, and that was the one they did about the proliferation of conspiracy theories and how they've always been part of America's DNA. That's something I think about quite a lot, given the creep of misinformation and manipulation in online true crime spaces. NPR's Throughline is a source we trust. They're all about nuance and depth and unpacking the messiness behind outwardly simple stories. Go back in time. Learn something new. Emerge more knowledgeable about today's headlines. Listen now to Throughline from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and... Producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Content warning. This episode contains descriptions of murder, violence, and animal abuse. Sometimes scrolling through the hundreds of homicides we've documented on our murder sheet we come across a fascinating little fragment of a case. These are undercovered, obscure killings with just enough details to intrigue, but not enough to support a whole full-length episode. Discovering these little slivers can be frustrating. We'd love to share the lesser-known cases with you all, but there's often just not a lot there to research. But we think we have a solution. In this episode, we'll be doing something a little different. Instead of dedicating the entire episode to one case, we'll split our time between two different restaurant homicides. Though six decades separate these slayings, the two stories have a number of strange details in common. Both took place in major cities, namely Chicago and New York. Both took place in the evening hours. Both involved unruly customers and the shooting death of the restaurant's owner. Perhaps most unusually, both involved an animal that was housed within a restaurant, a creature who served to decorate the space. Now let's get into two rather odd restaurant homicides. My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. 
And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast. Anya and I connected over the Burger Chef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees. Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, the murder sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout season one to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes. We don't just rely on skimming the headlines. We dive into these cases to bring you in-depth coverage. We're the murder sheet, and this is the bear and the bird. First up, let's talk about the bear. People sometimes seem to go a little crazy around the holidays. That's true now, and it was even true way back in 1875, when the Chicago Tribune complained that something always seemed to happen to spoil the fun of a holiday. Thanksgiving in the city that year was marred by a murder, one that happened to take place in a restaurant that was just a short walk from the Tribune building itself. The victim was Charlie Wyland, and he managed the St. Elmo restaurant. No, that's not the St. Elmo's in Indianapolis that's famous for its cocktail sauce, or even the fictional Georgetown bar. We're talking about a much more iffy establishment here. A man named Henry Davis showed up there on November 25th, 1875, and he started drinking. Davis and Wyland knew each other, the Chicago Inter-Ocean reported that they had once been friends, but had quarreled recently. That paper suggested it was because of jealousy over a woman. As the afternoon progressed, and Davis got drunker and drunker, his behavior began to get out of control. The first to feel the consequences of his antics was a bear. Yes, a bear. Wyland inexplicably kept a bear chained to the steps just outside the restaurant. Davis, for some reason, decided to taunt the poor animal. The Tribune said he actually attacked the beast. But it is unclear exactly what that means. In any case, the bear grew angry enough to bite Davis on the hand. An enraged Davis then picked up the animal and threw it with all his might against the steps injuring it. Davis then went back into the restaurant. Some witnesses said that at this point Wyland criticized him for hurting his pet, but other witnesses dispute this. In any case, Davis kept on drinking. After a while, Davis got into a disagreement with another man at the bar. He and the other man called each other names, and then Davis took out a revolver and struck the other man in the face with it. The other man began to bleed, and he retreated to the washroom to clean up. Davis followed him there, continuing to call him names. 
Wyland went into the washroom as well and asked Davis in quiet tones to leave his business. A few moments later, Davis and Wyland stepped out of the washroom and continued their conversation. Henry Fisher, the head waiter at St. Elmo, told the Tribune what happened next. Davis began to abuse Wyland and called him an epithet unfit to be printed, and lots of other names just as bad. All Mr. Wyland said was that he didn't want any trouble. He didn't say anything abusive to Davis and didn't raise his hand to him. All he said was, yes, yes, I know I am, when Davis called him. Then Davis cocked his pistol and pointed it at Mr. Wyland and repeated the names he had before used, and all Wyland said was to please not shoot, and he stepped behind the stove. Then Davis followed him around and said, I believe I'll shoot you. And he did shoot, and Mr. Wyland dropped on his back. Davis was so near that the powder from the pistol blackened his face. Wyland's friends carried him to his room in the hotel attached to St. Elmo. A doctor was present and tried his best to treat the wounded man, but there was little he could do. Wyland would be dead within ten minutes. Meanwhile, Davis fled. He ran out into the street as people yelled wildly for someone in the crowd to grab him. One man did in fact manage to get hands on Davis, but Davis pulled out his revolver and the man swiftly let Davis free. Finally, in desperation, Davis returned to the St. Elmo. He hid behind an ice chest when he saw a police officer come in to arrest him. The police officer, a man named Fector, approached Davis carefully. Vector knew how dangerous situations like this could be. He had once been shot in the neck by a criminal. He told Davis to give up his weapon and submit to the arrest. But Davis didn't much like that idea. He took out his revolver, pointed it at Vector, and fired. The bullet passed through Vector's coat sleeve. The officer quickly grabbed Davis's hand, got the gun away, and placed the murderer under arrest. At the police station, According to the Tribune, Davis feigned to be exceedingly drunk and would not answer straight questions except in the most equivocal and sometimes nonsensical manner. With a pillow made of his overcoat, he lay down on the bench of his cell, and with his head close to the bars, he utterly refused to speak or show himself. Yet his reticence did not last long. Within a few hours, he submitted to an interview with a Tribune reporter who would detail the encounter in the next day's paper. At first sight, Davis seems rather pleasant, but a full view of his features shows that his nature is sullen and morose and vengeful. His eyes are of the dark, bright, restless description, a poor idea of the color of which can be made out at night. They seemed more the eyes of a tiger at bay than anything else. Have you no recollection of having committed a murder? No, sir, I have not. Now look here, Davis. Look at me and tell me. Do you not remember of having killed a man in the St. Elmo? Killed a man? No, sir. Who was it? Why, Charlie Wyland. You shot him in the St. Elmo restaurant tonight. Me? Killed Wyland? Yes, sir. You killed Wyland. Davis then arose from his seat and began to pace his cell. I suppose, sir, you are telling the truth. Certainly, sir. There is no use of your affecting ignorance. You have committed a cold-blooded and dastardly murder 
which has no extenuating circumstances surrounding it. Davis now assumed a tragic pose, and somewhat after the style of the late Edward Forrest in King Lear, he exclaimed in a loud voice, drawing up his clenched fists, apparently in holy terror. Me kill a man! My God, it cannot be! No, no, I would not! Then he threw down his hands and lowered his eyes to the floor. After pacing once or twice across the cell, he returned to the reporter. You say I shot Wyland and that he is dead? Yes, that is what I said and repeat it. And that you are accused of the murder is the reason for your confinement here. So that is what I am in for. I presume I'll know all about it in the morning. You know all about it now! Not everyone shared the Tribune reporter's skepticism. Davis's lawyers argued that he was insane and truly had not realized what he had done. When he was put on trial a couple of months later, at least a couple of members of the jury believed it. They would not vote to convict Davis. Since a verdict could not be reached, it was announced that Davis would be retried. But before that could happen, Davis pled guilty to manslaughter, accepting a prison term of 21 years. That sentence was handed down in early 1876. Despite all of these legal proceedings, some believe that a huge question remained unanswered. Why had this even happened? Why exactly had Davis shot Wyland? Reading about it today, it feels that Davis simply got drunk and violent and may have killed anyone who got in his way, and that it was simply random chance that the victim happened to be Wyland. But some reporters at the time hinted that this was what we were supposed to think, but that there was actually another motive, that it all went back to the rumors that the men's friendship broke up over a woman, and they even named her. Maddie Salisbury was the casket of his secret, wrote the Tribune in 1877. And had the reportorial hand fallen with iconoclastic smash upon the monument of mystery that was reared upon Charlie Wyland's bones, perhaps Hank Davis's term of imprisonment would have been shorter. If we understand that word salad correctly, the Tribune is asserting that Wyland wronged Maddie Salisbury in some way and that Davis was somehow morally right to have killed him over it. Maddie Salisbury, it turns out, lived with Davis. They told the world that the two of them were cousins, but she was actually his mistress. And she had a bit of a history. She was married to a thief and con man named Ross Salisbury. But, according to one of the Chicago Inter-Ocean sources, she's a tartar. She made it so hot for Salisbury that he was obliged to leave her. That, presumably, was when she took up with Davis. And soon after, people started seeing her hanging out with Wyland in an area around the apartment she shared with Davis. This, wrote the Inter-Ocean, would seem to confirm the theory that the assassination was a deliberately planned affair on the part of Davis to wreak vengeance on a man who had been transgressing on his own private property. This woman was at the bottom of it. She had wrought her paramour up to a pitch of excitement, which induced him to go and get drunk and act the crazy man in order to escape the consequences and take the life of a man who was at once his companion and his rival. So instead of the murder being the result of a sudden frenzy inspired by copious drinking, 
It was a deeply planned murder instigated by jealousy and inflamed by the wiles of a wanton. Who knows, of course, if that theory is true. In any case, it seems interesting that the anonymous reporter seemed more outraged by Maddie's alleged promiscuity than by Davis shooting an unarmed man. In any case, by 1882, just six years into his 21-year sentence, Davis was already seeking a pardon, and the Tribune was not too happy about it. The first step in getting a pardon in those days was to get an endorsement from the sentencing judge, which, in this case, was a man named Rogers. And, as the Tribune reported, Davis's mother went to see Judge Rogers for that purpose, claiming that she needed Davis to be free to support her, and that his health was suffering in prison. The Tribune asserted that those claims were untrue, but the judge seemed to believe them. He gave a qualified endorsement to the idea of reducing Davis's sentence. And that is what ultimately happened. In 1883, his sentence was reduced to 14 years. With time off for good behavior, he was released in 1884. A murderer let loose, headlined the Tribune's story about his parole. But the public at large did not seem to share the Tribune's outrage. And Davis quietly slipped into the mists of history. We couldn't find what happened to him, or even to Maddie Salisbury, the woman the Interocean blamed for the murder. We can tell you, though, what happened to her husband, Ross. The career criminal and con man was arrested in Toledo for being a suspicious character, and shortly thereafter was released. Ross publicly attacked the character of Jacob Knoll, the officer who arrested him. A furious Knoll demanded a retraction. He did not get one. So, Noel shot Ross Salisbury dead, and then turned the gun on himself, taking his own life. The press noted that this was a tough break on Salisbury's aged mother, who now would have no one to support her. Mysteries are at the heart of everything we do here on The Murder Sheet. But sometimes it's more fun to dive into a fictional caper. That's why we love the free-to-download hidden object game June's Journey. This game is our daily escape from waiting around in line, getting stuck on hold, and just general doldrums. It is great to be able to just knock out a few levels here and there. You'll get to discover your inner sleuth and sharpen your observational skills by finding clues hidden in each level. Plus, it's like dropping straight into your own cozy mystery novel. You play as June Parker, an amateur detective with a nose for trouble. You get to tackle all kinds of bizarre crimes across a series of elegant and memorable locales. Also, you have a side hustle decorating your own island estate. I love that. I bought a swan pond. She really did. Download this game for a built-in work break. It's a great mental health boost that makes you feel accomplished before you get back to tackling whatever task you have at hand. And remember, when you support our advertisers, you're supporting our show. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. 
The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hi, I'm Anna Thomas, and let me tell you about my podcast, Apple for the Teacher. It sure sounds like it's about reading, writing, and arithmetic, but don't let the title fool you. I'm a teacher from Australia and tell true crime stories associated with schools, which go far beyond shootings and teacher sexual misconduct. If you're like me, you may feel that you know enough about some high-profile cases, such as Ted Bundy and the Zodiac Killer. Apple for the Teacher presents lesser-known stories, such as albino student murder in Africa, schoolgirl sexual slavery in Libya, a school suicide bombing in Pakistan, a student murdered and buried in his school in India, a teacher beheaded in France, Polish teachers executed by the Nazis, just to name a few. But you'll also find school-based tragedies, such as a school bus stranded in a snowstorm, a school wiped out by a landslide, the drowning of students in a sinking ship. It can be described as a mixed bag of diverse stories. So if you're looking for something a little different in the true crime genre, then give it a listen. And I hope you can join me soon. But until then, remember to be a good apple. By the way, if you're interested in hearing Anya talk about a crime that's not related to murder, you might want to tune in to the new Amazon Prime series, Lula Ridge. Anya appears in episode 4 to discuss some of the legal problems faced by the company LulaRow. It's an entertaining program well worth a watch. Now, let's get to the bird. July is a tough month in New York City. In my memory, heat pulses from the pavement into the soles of your shoes. The air smells like boiled garbage. The summer sun scorches every scrap of space not shadowed by a skyscraper. Let's go back to a long-forgotten July in New York City. July 12, 1942, to be precise. The place is Harlem, a neighborhood that crowns Upper Manhattan. The Harlem Renaissance, the explosion of music and literature and political action among African Americans who flocked to New York City, was already a decade in the past by the time our story takes place. The neighborhood had been devastated during the Great Depression, spurring a mass exodus of residents and businesses. In 1935, rioting in the neighborhood left countless properties destroyed and three people dead. Another riot will follow in 1943, but we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. Our tale takes place in Harlem of Old, around 3rd Avenue and 100th Street. Today, that intersection is flanked by a Pentecostal church and a charismatic church, not to mention a dollar store, a pawn shop, and a public housing development from the New York City Housing Authority. This is now called East Harlem, also known as Spanish Harlem or El Barrio. Back in 1942, a restaurant called the Green Parrot Bar and Grill was situated at 1806 Third Avenue in this gritty swath of East Harlem. A man named Max Geller owned the bar. Geller was apparently a strong sort who didn't tolerate nonsense from his customers. But on July 12, 1942, 
Somebody shot Geller in front of a group of witnesses. Nobody talked. Nobody, that is, except for a parrot. Yep, that's right. A parrot. We're going to discuss the so-called green parrot murder mystery. I realize that the green parrot murder mystery truly sounds like something plucked straight out of a novel. I can picture a sleuth, either a hard-boiled detective or a plucky amateur who owns a pet store or something, choose your poison, tackling such a case. The book's cover would be one of those pulpy paintings of a beautiful redhead in an emerald dress looking terrified, with a parrot flapping in the darkened background. But such a mystery did take place in real life. Noted crime writer Edward D. Radin covered it in his book, Twelve Against the Law. We discovered it in the form of a truly bonkers feature that ran in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, titled The Green Parrot Murder Mystery. It's an excerpt from Radin's book, Twelve Against the Law. I'll be up front. When I'm feeling like a jaded reporter, I reckon that some aspects of this story sound far too perfect to be true. But it's one of those tales that's too wild not to share with you all. The shooting took place around 6 p.m. on that evening in July. The Green Parrot Bar and Grill had a decent crowd that night. One notable figure who was there to carouse with the best of them was a rather profane green parrot. You see, there was an actual green parrot living in the bar. It sat on a little perch and interacted with the customers, often screeching, It's murder! to the delight and horror of onlookers. According to Raiden, guests would teach the bird their names. The publican's parrot also picked up quite a few filthy curse words along the way. Imagine that. You're standing there, desperately trying to get the bartender's attention so you can order a gin and tonic. And out of nowhere, this beautiful bird with gleaming green feathers and ruby-tipped wings swoops in to swear at you and scream literal bloody murder. Surreal. On the night of July 12, 1942, police were summoned to the Green Parrot Bar and Grill. They discovered Geller at the front of the restaurant, suffering from a gunshot wound in the throat. He lay dying beneath his beloved parrot's perch. A trail of blood led back to behind the bar. Someone had shot the bar owner, pocketed 13 bucks from the register, and fled. Geller slipped into unconsciousness before he got to the hospital. He never woke up and died on August 2nd. Louis Pagnuco was one of the officials tasked with responding to the scene. He was an assistant district attorney, a polyglot, a Columbia grad, and an appointee handpicked by D.A. Thomas E. Dewey. Yes, that's the same Dewey who later served as the governor of the Empire State and a failed presidential candidate. Before you think Pagnico starts to sound too much like the hero of a mystery series, he was apparently a bit of a fan of Benito Mussolini, and even praised the dictator in his college thesis. So, yikes to that. He later became a family court judge. Anyways, Pagnuco and Detective Captain Daniel Mahoney found around 20 customers who didn't see anything at the Green Parrot Bar and Grill that night. Words like stick-up and stranger got thrown around. The parrot apparently had something to say and kept screeching the word robber at the baffled cops. Pagnuco eventually ordered the police to interview all of the reluctant, unobservant witnesses at the station on East 104th Street. 
Now remember, Pagnuco was a language expert, having previously served seven years as an interpreter in Italian, Spanish, and French for the Court of General Sessions, according to the New York Times. In the waiting room of the precinct, he happened to hear a familiar sound. Two witnesses, nervous women in their 30s who had been hanging out in the bar during the murder, were murmuring to one another in French, specifically Quebecois, the dialect spoken by residents of Canada's Quebec province. Pagnuco hung around and eavesdropped. According to Raiden, one of the women was cautioning her companion to not divulge any information about what they'd seen to the cops. They didn't want to get in trouble with their husbands, who thought they were catching a film rather than bar hopping. Naturally, Pagnuco called both the ladies in succession and quickly confronted them. The women each crumpled and tearfully described the killer, an African-American man wearing an eye-catching black and white suit. They said they'd never seen the killer before. This lead was exciting, but by itself, it left Pagnuco without much to go on. But Pagnuco wasn't alone. Detective John Morrissey was also on the case. Raiden describes Morrissey as a gray-haired, bespectacled type, a cop whose snappy professional fashion sense led to a nickname, the Banker. This wasn't the first time the detective and the prosecutor had worked together either. The previous July, Pagnuco and Morrissey had teamed up to indict three men in the 1939 cold case slaying of patrolman Michael J. Moroso. Now, Morrissey was investigating the Geller case. He started by basically interviewing the Green Parrot. Morrissey was perplexed about the Parrot's new favorite phrase, robber, robber. Customers and employees told him that the bird wasn't known to say that. According to Raiden, he eventually came to Pagnuco with his theory. The bird was yelling Robert, the name of the killer, not robber. After all, the green parrot had been known to learn the names of frequent customers. And one of those regulars, a taxi stand operator by the name of Robert Butler, had not been seen around lately. He also matched the description given by the two women. Morrissey and Pagnuco checked on Butler's wife. She claimed that he vanished one day. They surveyed her mail, but Butler never reached out. Then, their focus turned to Butler's best friend, a clerk. The police brought him in on the bogus claim that he matched the description of a suspect in a fictional robbery, taking the opportunity to search his pockets. They found a letter from Robert mentioning a new gig at the Bethlehem Steel Plant in Baltimore, according to Raiden. Just as a side note, all of this would probably get thrown out in this day and age. The detectives had made up a crime in order to seize a citizen on false pretenses. Any defense attorney nowadays could have a field day with something like that. Anyways, Morrissey and Pagnuco found themselves in front of the steel plant, just in time to snatch Butler from the midnight shift crowd. At first, he denied being a killer, although he acknowledged that Geller's parrot was a smart bird. He's the one that told us you did it, Morrissey told him, according to Raiden. Butler's response? I never did like that bird. So why did Butler kill Geller? Well, the suspect ended up confessing everything to the authorities. Just before the murders, he'd been lucky in a game of dice. He collected a lot of money, 
but became afraid after his competitors expressed a violent resentment of his good fortune. He obtained a gun for protection. On the night of July 12, 1942, he'd been drinking. Butler apparently stumbled into the Green Parrot Bar and Grill, demanding a refill. When Geller told him to get lost, Butler shot him and ran. Later, Butler shared an entirely different version of the murder. He said that a brawl broke out. He saw Geller charging at him, wielding a knife. He shot down the bar owner in self-defense, in that iteration of the story. Butler ended up getting a life sentence at Sing Sing on February 10, 1944. He disappears from the historical record after that. So we're not entirely sure how to end this episode. Beware violent drunks. Avoid owning sketchy bars. Be glad that we live in a world where keeping a bird or a bear inside an eatery is frowned upon. Not sure if there's much more to say than that. We hope you enjoyed hearing about two more obscure cases of restaurant homicide, though. Unfortunately, there's not any information that we could find about what happened to the bear or parrot in these cases. I'll just add to close this out that if you witness animal abuse, please alert your local animal control agency or local authorities. Our sources for the case involving the bear were the Chicago Inter-Ocean and the Chicago Tribune. Our main source for the Green Parrot case is Edward D. Radin's reporting. He covered the murder in his 1946 book, 12 Against the Law. The Associated Press also provided informative coverage of the case, along with the Daily News in New York and the Circleville Herald. We got our information on Morrissey and Pagnuco's previous investigative collaboration from the Wilmington, Delaware Morning News. The book Mafia Summit by Gil Revel delves into some of Pagnuco's shadier connections. The excerpt from 12 Against the Law covering the Parrot case is available in the St. Louis Dispatch on newspapers.com. It's a good read. If you're interested in more work from Raiden, he wrote a number of books, including one about the Lizzie Borden case, Lizzie Borden, The Untold Story. It's an entertaining book, but he makes some unfair criticisms of the Dean of American True Crime Writers, Edmund Pearson. Also, Raiden thinks Borden was innocent, which is of course nonsense. She was as guilty as hell. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder Sheet, and on Facebook at MSheet Podcast, or by searching Murder Sheet. If you enjoy listening to The Murder Sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure. And send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.